Welcome to the Nashville Women's Health Podcast. This podcast was created as a way to provide education and connection to the women of Middle Tennessee. My goal is to connect you with local women's health and fitness providers so you know what services are available in your area. I am your host, Amy Bailey. I'm a local women's health physical therapist, yoga instructor, and life coach. Thank you for joining the podcast and being a part of this amazing community. Welcome to another edition of the Nashville Women's Health Podcast. This is your host, Amy Bailey, and you might hear my dogs barking in the background. I am at home recording today, but I have with me um, author and writer, Jen, please, I forgot to ask before the recording, say your last name for me. Yeah, it's Jennifer Chesick, but you can call me Jen throughout the podcast. Most people do. Okay. Yes. And you are the author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women. I am. That's me. <laughs> I love this. I um, told you before we got started just how excited I was that you're just so brave putting this out there. And I think it's just such necessary information and it's just so timely right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, the there, there are tons of books out there on psychedelics already, but this is the first one that investigates psilocybin with the intersection of women's health, which I'm so excited about. It's so needed right now. And uh, yeah, um, I can tell you more about the the concept of choosing to write about uh, women's health with psilocybin if you'd like. Yeah, let's go into that. Okay, yeah. So during my research, I realized that uh, there's there's a survey out there, the Global Drug Survey, and it's done every year. And they focus on different things when they do the survey every year. But in the 2020 Global Drug Survey, they determined that more women are using some psychedelics than men are. They're using them more frequently, which was interesting to me. But it kind of surprised me. But then when I dug a little deeper, it didn't surprise me. And the reason for that is the survey also checked in with people on why they use psychedelics. And it turns out that more women are using some psychedelics to self-treat, whereas men often use psychedelics recreationally. Not all men, of course, but um, that seems to be the trend. And I'm finding that when I talk to a lot of women, they say, yeah, my partner or, you know, like my husband, my brother, my partner, they have tried, you know, psilocybin or other psychedelics and they're trying to get me into it, you know? And so I'm finding actually that a lot of men are buying the book to give to their, the the women in their lives. So that's interesting. Um, But, you know, again, going back to this idea of why didn't it surprise me that more women are using psychedelics to self-treat? I think that is because a lot of times the mainstream medical system leaves women behind. And, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm a fan of the mainstream medical system because it's helped me in many ways, but also it's been probably in many ways, especially for women. So um, something I always love to talk about when I'm talking about this book is that women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until about the 1990s, which really blows my mind because I was a teenager then. And when you start to think about that and think what ramifications has that had, I dug a little deeper and here's a little timeline I like to throw out that sort of illustrates the difference between, you know, men's health or I should say the the health of the male body versus the health of the female body. So um, with with all of that, it turns out that men actually had a drug for male sexual dysfunction in 1998. Viagra was approved in 1998 for men. Then if we look a little further, 
I, you know, digging into that timeline a bit more, it wasn't until 2005 that we actually had a, a picture of the clitoris, like the full picture of it with all of its internal structures. People didn't know about that before, or, you know, it just wasn't available information to the medical community, but also think about that in terms of female pleasure in the bedroom that just wasn't even known. Right. And a so that was, that didn't happen. Piece oh, of sexual health, a huge piece yeah, of health. Absolutely. So that was shocking to me. And then if you look a little further, when did women finally get a drug for female sexual dysfunction? Not until 2015. So that's 17 years after men had a drug. So that just illustrates some of the ramifications of this idea of women not being included in early stage clinical trials. And so again, I think this all ties into why are women turning to psychedelics? They're turning to psychedelics to self-treat for conditions that no one is paying attention to, you know? So yeah, there we are. Yeah. And I think we're looking for more holistic routes. Not that we feel that medication is bad, but sometimes we want to try something else, you know, where we've tried all the medications. What else? Absolutely. That's so true. Yeah. So why psilocybin? Why did you go down that rabbit hole? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so it was really my publisher's idea to focus on uh, the psilocybin aspect of it, rather than encompassing all the psychedelics. I think that would constitute a much larger book and take a lot more time. But by really focusing on just one psychedelic, I, you know, again, was really able to home in on the the studies, the research that's very focused on psilocybin, rather than looking at all of the psychedelics. I, you know, I did dig a little into the research of other psychedelics and the the comparison of all of them but yeah psilocybin was just kind of the the main focus of the book and i'm glad that we did that so for listeners who aren't as familiar with psychedelics can you explain the difference between maybe psilocybin and something else that we would hear sure yeah so you often hear of uh like lsd which the street name would be acid from back in the day right and so you know that is something that's synthetic it's manufactured and there's nothing wrong with that that's it it turns out to be that's that's a good psychedelic but I think a lot of people are really interested in these plant medicines so cannabis and um and psilocybin you know there's a whole debate on whether cannabis is a psychedelic you know but um we won't get into that it's just more that uh I really feel strongly about what was that another book yeah exactly is cannabis a psychedelic (laughs) (laughs) my new book um but yeah so uh, I think psilocybin just is, is something people are extremely interested in right now because it's a fungus and it's very, it's natural. And you, I think I felt personally safer putting that in my body than another psychedelic. Again, I'm not disparaging any other psychedelic. There's a lot of research coming out about mm. all of them, especially MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy or molly, depending on what era you grew up in. And uh, so, yeah, again, I just feel that uh, that women are really interested in psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I love that all of this information is now getting out there and it's becoming more mainstream with certain states legalizing psilocybin now. Yeah. And of course we're in Tennessee, which is a little behind the times on some of this (laughs) and a little controversial. So have you run into some controversy surrounding the book? I have, especially this week. So I was scheduled to do an interview on WSMV. A producer had reached, oh, that's Channel 4. A producer had reached out to me to you know, come and talk about my book in, on, in a little segment. And then the day, and this happened about three weeks ago. And then the day before my interview, which was just this Tuesday, uh, they emailed me and they're like, are we talking about illegal drugs? And I'm like, well, I mean, 
yes, but it depends on where you are. And obviously the landscape is changing very rapidly. We've got, um, the FDA has uh, designated psilocybin as breakthrough therapy for depression. And, uh, and similar concepts with MDMA are going on. In fact, MDMA will probably be um, FDA approved before psilocybin. So we're moving in this landscape of that the legalities are changing. As you mentioned, there are some states that have already decriminalized or legalized psilocybin in certain contexts, along with some other psychedelics. So I'm excited to see that. But we can kind of look at the cannabis landscape to see how that probably will play out is that we'll have a patchwork of states that yeah. that make changes, even though psilocybin is still federally federally illegal under the Controlled Substances Act. It's, you know, a scheduled drug. I think we will see in the very near future that that will be descheduled federally. Obviously, I can't guarantee that, but that's just the prediction that I'm getting from a lot of researchers. But yeah, so they, the WSMV uh, emailed me and they were like, are we talking about illegal drugs? And the, uh, after I tried to assuage the person and calm them down, not that they were out of line or anything, it was just a question. And uh, they they called, we talked on the phone and then we determined that the news director and the general manager are like, no, we can't have you on there. And I'm like, that is so ridiculous. How behind the times is this state? The state yes. really frustrates me. That's very so. frustrating. Um, I am a pelvic floor physical therapist and I was asked to go on a local news channel and I brought my pelvis with me, which has the <laughs> of the pelvic floor. And they took my clitoris and- <laughs> I mean, hit it, you know, and then I had to turn the pelvis upside down. So you couldn't even see the vulva. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, that's this ridiculous. Is anatomy. This is part of the human body. But yeah, so definitely behind the times. Absolutely. <laughs> I've been enjoying saying um, clitoris or on the air when I'm talking to people. because I've done some like live radio shows. I've been yeah. enjoying saying that because I'm like, oh, are people going to think it's a bad word? But it's <laughs> obviously not. It's just the female anatomy. Yes. I'm big on like pushing the envelope now. At first I wouldn't. And now I'm like, this is, it's time. It's, it's time. time we talk about it and stop it's creating stigma for women. Because we're not little men. You know, no. and I think you're right. That whole um, thing with the research being so delayed for women. I mean, they just thought if you give this drug to a man, it's going to affect a woman body the same way. And we found that's not how it is. Yeah, that is not how it is. And it's it's super frustrating that, pe that the medical community tries to treat us as the as our bodies are all the same. And they're not. No. So one of my passions is pelvic pain. Um, and treating pelvic pain. And I think I read, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have endometriosis. Is that correct? I do. Yes. And so kind of talk to me about the research that you've seen with psilocybin on pelvic pain or endometriosis. Absolutely. So there's definitely some possibilities that psilocybin affects the menstrual cycle. So I'll, I'll dive into that in a minute, but going back to endometriosis, I was diagnosed uh, in, I guess I was, I was about 21 years old. I, you know, I've had pelvic pain my entire life or since, you know, around the time that I got my period and uh, didn't know what was going on. Eventually was diagnosed, had tons of laparoscopic surgeries. I can never say that word. Yeah. And then finally I had a, a hysterectomy and, and hysterectomy is not curative of endometriosis, but it certainly has helped me quite a bit. And so, you know, yeah, this, this concept of how, what do we do for these problems that people, the researchers really aren't paying attention to. So endometriosis, going back to that, one in 10 
people assigned female at birth have endometriosis. And of course, sometimes males can get endometriosis too. That's pretty rare, but it's a very painful condition, very frustrating. Um, women are often told that pelvic pain is in their heads, which I'm sure you've encountered as a practitioner. Yes. And the alarming thing is the National Institutes of Health even though this is a condition that affects one in 10 people assigned female at birth, they only designated less than 0.1% of their research funding to study endometriosis. If that was in 2022. I don't know what the facts and figures are for 2023, but that really pisses me off, you know, uh, because we don't have a cure and we really don't have adequate treatment. But I did learn through my research, this, this was kind of exciting. Um, now, again, researchers were not actually studying psilocybin for endometriosis, so we would need more research on this. But something that really caught my eye was this study that recently came out where researchers took four psilocybin ex mushroom extracts and they did this experiment in a or study in a lab so it wasn't on humans but they used human cells and then they placed the extracts on those cells and uh and it decreased the inflammatory cytokine expression so that was really exciting especially since we know that the, the growth, the endometrial lesions or endometriosis lesions, uh, those secrete uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So this idea that maybe there's something out there that can decrease that expression is incredible. So again, we don't have specific research on psilocybin and endometriosis, but I was excited to learn that. And then also I was re researching all this, the, the intersection of of psilocybin with the menstrual cycle. And I came across this great research from uh, Johns Hopkins where um, it, her, it's Dr. Natalie Gukassian and her colleague, uh, Dr. Sasha Narayan, I believe. So they did the, these case studies uh, where they looked at three women to see how psychedelics affected their menstrual cycle. So it was just a very much a, a questionnaire and talking to them or an interview, I should say. And they learned that so two of the women used psilocybin as their psychedelic journey. And they one of them had premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD, and the other had polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And so the, both women reported that their um, cycles came early after trying psilocybin, like doing more of a macro dose. And then they also um, mentioned that their periods uh, started to become more regular after a time of either irregularity or even having amenorrhea where they weren't getting their periods. So there does seem to be this possibility that psilocybin may uh, help regulate the menstrual cycle. And I've heard other reports from women just, you know, in my Instagram DMs telling me that they tried psilocybin and their periods came early after trying. And so a lot of people want to know about the mechanisms related to that. So I always like to explain that. So the cycle occurs along the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis or uh, for women that the gonads would be the ovaries. And so that as one hormone during our cycle, like estrogen kicks off, that tells another hormone what to do essentially. And I know, you know, all this, I'm just sharing oh, it. Keep for the talking. Audience. I love it. Yes. And, uh, and then the, um, when we think about our stress response, we have another axis and that's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so obviously those axes overlap with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. So when we use psilocybin, that's activating that HPA axis, 
um, you know, with our stress response because psilocybin binds to serotonin receptors. And we, we already know that the HPA axis and the HPG axis, again, they overlap, but we know through research that they also um, can affect, one can affect the other. So we, we all know that our periods can, as women with this experience of bleeding, we all know that our periods can impact our stress response and our stress response can impact our periods. And so it's certainly not a stretch to assume that psilocybin is doing something with the menstrual cycle. And it sounds like through, again, very preliminary research and we need more, it sounds like favorable or positive results with the, or impacts with the menstrual cycle. So I'm super excited about that. I did talk to um, a, an indigenous wisdom expert who practices womb care. She she calls it mush womb consciousness, which I love. Oh my gosh, and, I'm gonna find that. I'm yeah, sorry. her name is Mama De Lamico on Instagram. Her first name is actually Michaela, but she goes by Mama De Lamico. And she was so fascinating to talk to because she talked about when in the menstrual cycle to go ahead and do a deeper trip if that's what you're planning to do. I mean, obviously with psilocybin, we have macro doses and we have micro doses. So a macro dose is, is something that's more like three grams, just a ballpark, it could be less or a little bit more. Whereas a micro dose is a very low dose where you're not having a lot of psychedelic effect, actual visuals or anything like that. You can still function in your daily life. But if we're choosing to macro dose, Doing that around the time of ovulation is better rather than near the end of your cycle when you're about to bleed. And that's simply, and it totally made sense from a scientific perspective. It's simply because as we get closer to bleeding, we're in that luteal phase and, um, and our bodies are sort of putting all our, our energy towards the potential fetus, right? Or embryo. And so um, we, we tend to, we can't necessarily fast like we normally would a lot of people, nor, you know, fast before a psilocybin session. And that's simply to in, have an enhanced experience, but you wouldn't be able to do that as you get closer to your period or it's much harder. Whereas we have a lot more energy in our bodies that's available to us rather than just to the uterus during the ovulation phase. And I, so I really loved talking to her. And she also mentioned that if we are planning to microdose to see how that, right, if that helps with the cycle, if we're having issues, um, microdosing, giving it about three months time to see how whatever protocol you're doing works. So there are several microdosing protocols out there. And I do mention two of them in my book, the two main ones. And so if you're, whatever protocol you're trying, do that for three months and maybe keep a diary or a journal about your symptoms and things like that to see if anything is changing. So she was fascinating to talk to. And I think it's so important in this space to really bring in that indigenous wisdom because, uh, you know, I know we think of science as, as in, in terms of Western science, doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results. But that's exactly what indigenous people have been doing for however long, I don't even know how long, with psilocybin. And so we have to bring that in just as much as we're bringing in this new research. And that's so important because this is a sacred substance. All right, I'll stop blabbing right no, no, now. <laughs> this is so good. You went down so many things. So one of the things that kind of like piqued my brain was just menstruation in general. I always say it's a sign if we're menstruating regularly of good feminine health. And so you're bringing in helping this case study, helping women get back to a normal cycle, but also not leaving out that HPA axis and the role that stress plays in it. So it, it all comes right. together for our physical, mental, emotional. I love it. 
spiritual. Absolutely. Yes. 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 And then, you know, what are the implications? And we may not know this yet, but just having a normal regular cycle for my clients are dealing with infertility, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. I don't, I didn't come across any studies about fertility yet in terms of psilocybin, but I think we will get there. I, I see potential, especially if someone's having an irregular cycle and then it becomes regular perhaps after using psilocybin. Again, no guarantee that that's going to happen, but if it did, then would that impact fertility? It's, it's very, it's highly likely, but yes. again, we need more research on that. Exactly. We want the research to back it up, but yes. it seems like for certain people, it would be a no brainer, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, menopause. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So menopause was a fascinating thing to sort of dive in regarding psilocybin. I wasn't sure would it help or would, you know, would it be problematic? I didn't know. I I suspected it might help, but something that, that came to mind with that was we have in, in, in menopause, one of the most common symptoms is Uh, depression. And even people who've never faced depression before may face that in menopause. And it has to do with the fluctuating hormones. And I should really say, it probably would happen more in perimenopause as we get closer to that menopause threshold, you know, then after that, you're in postmenopause, where you might go to the doctor for depression, and they're going to just automatically prescribe you an SSRI, SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And there's nothing wrong with SSRIs. I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with them, but a lot of people don't like them because, especially in menopause, because they further inhibit libido and that's another symptom of menopause. And the other thing that some people don't like about SSRIs is that they really blunt your mood, they blunt your affect. And so um, not only does it blunt your lows in terms of depression, but it blunts your highs too. So you're not getting a lot of times that really strong feeling of enjoyment. And the great thing that I learned about psilocybin in uh, through research was that people say, instead of blunting your, your mood or your affect, psilocybin makes you feel more okay with not only your highs, but also your lows. And so it could be a really good avenue for, um, you know, helping with depression in menopause, I think. Um, and then thinking about sexual dysfunction. So um, uh, it's uh, in our reproductive years, 40%, about 40% of women have some type of female sexual dysfunction that, it, you know, gets crazy when you're in menopause, because that goes up to 85% of women then may face female sexual dysfunction in menopause. So again, alarming that we didn't have a drug for that until 2015, which was like yesterday, right? Yes. And But yeah, so female sexual dysfunction. um, So in terms of psilocybin, it's not necessarily that psilocybin is going to be an aphrodisiac or anything like that. In fact, it may make you not feel very like getting lovey-dovey in the moment, but, um, or in terms of sex, I should say. But uh, there's definitely some potential in terms of helping with female sexual dysfunction because uh, two things that are protective against female sexual dysfunction are really strong intimate partner communication and then also a strong um, acceptance of your own body. And a lot of women don't have either of those things. And so psilocybin certainly fosters unity with others and your partner doesn't even have to do psilocybin. You can just feel that unity yourself uh, going off and doing your own psilocybin journey and then coming back together with your sexual partner can be extremely gratifying. And then also in terms of body image, 
um, there, uh, there, we are seeing that studies are happening for psilocybin in terms of eating disorders. And a lot of that has to do with, in terms of the, the potential benefits of that, a lot of issues with eating disorders, there's something going on. Oops, I just dropped my earring. There's something going on in the brain with the, with the body image and psilocybin does some work to help that, which is amazing. And I can talk about some mechanisms a little later, but um, I really see potential in helping with female sexual dysfunction in menopause. And, and one thing that I interviewed Dr. Michelle Ross, she's a neuroscientist who studies plant medicines and she's fabulous. She mentioned that, uh, you know, she encourages women to go and do a solo psilocybin journey and, and explore, like, you know, explore your body, see what feels good to you, and then take that back to the bedroom and talk to your partner. And that could potentially really help. And then one more thing about menopause um, is that in, uh, in menopause, people who've had adverse childhood experiences tend to have worsened menopause symptoms, which is really fascinating to me, because I don't think the medical system really considers that when they talk to a woman about menopause, that, hey, if you've had some trauma from childhood, that may, you know, affect your symptoms in menopause and uh, adverse childhood experiences, um, ACEs for short, are things that any trauma that occurred in childhood, maybe you survived a natural disaster, maybe your parents, there was a lot of um, arguing in your household, violence, domestic uh, abuse, or abuse to the child themselves. Uh, parents being incarcerated or a parent or, or divorce can even be a trauma, a severe childhood illness. All of these things kind of compound as adverse childhood experiences. And um, so what they found is that, you know, uh, I think it's one in six adults have had four or more ACEs, which is really interesting to me. And um, again, we have worsened symptoms in menopause. So I think with psilocybin, we know psilocybin can help with trauma. We're already seeing great research on that. And so I see strong potential for psilocybin to help with trauma as we are in adulthood, wherever we are on the menopause trajectory to hopefully lessen our menopause symptoms. You know, there's possibility there. I have not heard that connection. That's mind blowing. Just the ACEs and how that can affect menopause. You know, as a pelvic floor PT in my training, they're like, you know, the healthier you are, the less symptoms you're going to have. And it doesn't even relate back to childhood and trauma. And that's integral for women for feeling better. It understand that. really is. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned through different research, not related to psilocybin, but about ACEs is that if you have, if you've had a lot of ACEs in your, in your childhood and, and you're in adulthood now, uh, that can impact your metabolic health. So it could make you more predisposed to things like prediabetes and type two diabetes, obesity. And we do know that, um, that worsened metabolic health also impacts menopause symptoms. So I think that's the potential mechanism. Again, I don't, we don't know for sure that that's the mechanism about why ACEs can compound menopause symptoms, but that's, I think that would be the potential one. So interesting. It all goes back yeah. to like that whole theory, the body keeps score, you know? It really does. It does. Yes. Yeah. And I love just talking about body image and body dysphoria and how that can affect our sexual health. Um, I see a lot of clients with pelvic pain and a lot of it's emotional. And some of that emotion is not necessarily trauma, although some of it is, but some of it's just how they feel about their own body or they Absolutely. don't enjoy sex and they feel broken. So I love that idea of going off on their own journey, rediscovering themselves, getting a little bit more self-confidence and then trying to re-enter 
their sexual health maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea too. And I think it's so smart. You know, I did my own psilocybin journey and um, I uh, was not with my husband during that point in time, but I came back and I felt even more deeply connected to him than I already did just by doing that journey. And he didn't take psilocybin and nothing really changed in our relationship, but I could just really lean into that connection that we have. Oh, that's amazing. And that was a question I had too, because you talked a little bit about dosing. Um, yeah. so the effects actually carry on, even if like you're not taking a dose that day or whatnot. Can you talk a little Ab- bit about Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, after using psilocybin, we have a a difference in neuroplasticity. So our, our neurons are are changing and growing or strengthening. Um, We need a little bit more research on that. But there's a lot of potential in terms of uh, neuronal health or boosting neuronal health after doing psilocybin. So that could be with a deeper journey, or it could be, you know, with microdosing. So microdosing does also have some of those effects. You just don't have the classic psychedelic uh, trip going on where you're seeing crazy visuals and the couch is breathing, which can happen when you do a deeper trip. So, but yeah, it still has those beneficial effects. And uh, after a macrodose, I think they determined there's this increased neuroplasticity for definitely two weeks, but there've been, people have had behavioral change and effects lasting, you know, six months to a year, depending on the study that you're looking at and what the specific thing that the study was, you know, trying to investigate. So there's a lot of great benefits to that. And uh, just talking about what, what happens during in your brain during a psilocybin journey, can I kind of help people see how that works and why, why we have some of these effects, especially with body image. Uh, So um, psych- researchers, psychedelic researchers have uh, created this model to sort of explain what happens in, in your brain during a, a psychedelic journey. And they call it the Rebus model. And that stands for relaxed uh, beliefs under psychedelics. And so I love this model because they also created this really nice analogy to help understand it. And the the analogy is that during so normal state of consciousness, like you are, you and I are in right now, uh, our brains are much more rigid. And so uh, if you were, um, what I mean by rigid is we're very solidified in our pathways of thinking and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about the world in normal states of consciousness. When we're kids, our minds are much more flexible because we're still developing all of that. We haven't we haven't gotten our beliefs and our about ourselves or the world around us yet. We're developing those. So um, researchers have this great analogy that when you're on, when you're in normal states of consciousness, your mind is rigid and we can think of that as being like a frozen pond. And so if you were to take a pebble or a rock, thinking of that as a new input or belief about yourself, because you're trying to change your beliefs, if you drop that rock on that frozen pond, it does not gain entry. And that's simply because our belief systems are so solidified in normal states of consciousness. And so if you have a negative belief, that pushes down any possibility of getting that new belief in, in most cases. Now, when we're on psychedelics, uh, that pond becomes thought. It's much more flexible. And this all has to do with the changes in brain regions connecting with each other or disconnecting. Again, nothing dangerous happens in the brain. It's all beneficial. But uh, when now you now if you take that p- pebble and try to drop it on the pond, 
it gains entry, the pebble being that new belief, mm -hmm. and it causes a ripple effect. And so um, we get this new belief gaining entry into our mind when we're in an altered state of conscious consciousness, then when we tr return to our normal states of consciousness, then, you know, that belief is in your brain, and we have this new period of neuroplasticity and a lot of beneficial effects can happen during that time. Now, researchers say, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Meaning, try to think about the things you learned during your psilocybin journey. Uh, journal about them immediately after your journey um, can help. And then you'll kind of continue to gain new insights in the coming weeks. And it's good to think about those and to think about implementing behavior changes. So for example, if someone was trying to quit smoking, that's a really great time to quit smoking is right after a psilocybin journey. Oh my goodness. So this is just getting my brain spinning. I'm so excited. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I mean, I think about the implications of aging or learning and memory with that, if our neuroplasticity is uh, enhanced, I don't know what word I want there, but yeah. Yeah. Tell yes, me. absolutely. I didn't find, uh, so we, we're, they're starting to study uh, psilocybin in conjunction with dementia and Alzheimer's, but we don't have robust like clinical trials regarding that yet. Uh, but there was some indication that uh, people did have changes in the depression that's often present in dementia or, you know, specifically Alzheimer's. So, so I do think that we are going to see clinical trials come out eventually where we're seeing that enhanced neuroplasticity after a psychedelic journey and how that may benefit uh, dementia. So that's a great point. So exciting. Yes. Is there yeah. anything that you don't recommend trying psilocybin? I, I, I'm sorry, say that again, any people Anybody or wouldn't recommend uh, trying psilocybin. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to look at the conditions that would disqualify someone from doing a psilocybin clinical trial. So I wrote a chapter on safety and I list all of those things that would prevent someone from being a participant in a clinical trial. And so things like heart conditions, um, uh, extreme um, personality disorders. And uh, so like borderline personality disorder, of course, psilocybin is being studied for that at this juncture. But, um, you know, that's a very specific clinical trial. Uh, and the reason for some of these things is that so with with a heart condition or something like really high blood pressure, uh, psilocybin does kind of ramp up your heart rate and your uh, blood pressure during a journey. So you just would want to be really cognizant of that. And so it may be something down the road that is allowed in a clinical trial or um, in in therapy sessions under the supervision of a doctor. But I would be very mindful about not just going off and doing it yourself if you have a an underlying condition that would disqualify you from being in a clinical trial. And so again, those things are like diabetes, heart conditions, um, uh, again, extreme mental health issues, things like that. And again, that's just for people's safety, but also uh, it really matters what medications you're on too. And so uh, we don't have like an entire list that says, hey, you can't do this medication, you can't do psilocybin if you're on this medication. But this is a big topic right now that we need a lot more research on. So we're seeing that in clinical trials, they have people taper off of their SSRIs before doing a psilocybin journey. Uh, now, I don't want to tell people to taper off your medication unless you've talked to your doctor about that. 
But um, there is some research out there that um, that may not that tapering may not be necessary for many people on SSRIs. The reason that that was that that came up is people were worried that because psilocybin binds to the serotonin receptors, if you're on an SSRI and that increases serotonin in your in your body already, would you end up with something like serotonin syndrome? Now, researchers have determined that if you're generally on one SSRI, it doesn't affect um, that, 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 you know, it isn't necessarily a, an issue. But if you were on several different things like an SSRI, a mood stabilizer, some other medication, that's an indication that you might want to talk to your doctor a little bit more about before you do something. And again, I encourage people to talk to their doctors before trying psilocybin just to kind of, you know, gauge if it's safe for them. You know, that's my, that's my disclaimer since I'm personally not a doctor, but it can be frustrating to talk to a doctor about a plant medicine that's still illicit, illicit in quotes in, you know, federally, because they may not be on board with you doing it in the first place. So it's a weird conundrum, a weird space that that we're we're in right now, where a lot of people feel like they can't openly talk to their doctors about these things, you know? Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. If someone wanted to start looking into this or start their own psilocybin journey, how do you recommend them go forward? Absolutely. So um, the way that I did it was I contacted a guide. So he's, he's kind of like an underground guide, but he's very skilled in psilocybin. He's an indigenous person. And his name is Gabriel Castillo. And he operates a company called Finally Detached. And he so he does these personalized retreats for people. And I felt like that was a very safe way for me to uh, try psilocybin for the first time. I felt very comfortable. He brought a female trip sitter. We can talk about consent later. I think consent is so important in psilocybin sessions, but I was very adamant to have a female there since I was meeting complete strangers, you know, at a cabin in the woods, essentially. Um, But I had vetted them fully before going. They had vetted me as well, asking me about all my medications, any trauma that I was facing. Uh, They did a thorough intake, essentially, to ensure that this was the right thing for me and that I would be safe. And so I, I think that's really important when you're working with a guide or even a therapist, because um, in some states the, the psychedelic assisted therapy is becoming legalized and um, there will be some regulations with that. But uh, but yeah, having if, you're, if your practitioner vets you fully, I think that's an indication that you're doing something in a much more safer environment than if you just go into it willy nilly and go to a festival and you take, you take a handful of shrooms. I do not recommend that <laughs> way of doing things. I know people do that all the time, but I don't, I don't know that that sets you up for a good experience. And then there's something called set and setting in the psychedelic sphere. And what that means is the preparation that goes into doing a deeper trip. So set is involves your mindset. So what, what are you, um, you know, what are your intentions as you go into a psilocybin session? What, what, um, what place is your mind in? Are you super stressed out about work or are you very chill and you're like, hey, I want to do this. I'm doing something special for me. That's much a much better mindset to go into a psilocybin journey. And then the setting is really, again, just what you're, who's around you, what's around you, what environment are you in? Are you, are you at your apartment or with surrounded by comfy pillows? Are you at a festival or are you maybe 
uh, at a cabin in the woods and you're sitting outside with the mountains around you or something like that. And so the setting matters because you want to be in a very a, a setting that you feel very safe and comfortable in before going into a psilocybin journey, because again, that will set you up for the best trip possible. There's no guarantee that you're going to have the perfect trip or uh, and something amazing where you don't have any fear or anxiety crop up. But the more set and setting that you put into it, the less likely that the bad trips are going to happen. I love that. So going with a guide, they're more thoughtful about looking into that and helping you navigate the safest trip possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So my guide, he did, he was so amazing, but the first, I journeyed two days in a row. And so the first journey he was playing like a um, the Tibetan singing bowls, like a sound bath. And so was his other, the other practitioner that was with them, him. And so uh, it was so, it was so meditative. It was like being in a, you know, a meditation space or a yoga studio where you start the meditation off before you, you do your, your poses. And I think that was really calming and soothing. And the place was beautiful. There was incense. So it smelled nice. So I just felt really safe. Uh, to journey in that in that setting and again you can set that up in your apartment and make make all of these things you can do a playlist that's a sound bath or something like that Um, but I was really appreciative of all the thought that he put into really making it feel sacred and safe and ceremonial oh that's beautiful talk to us a little bit about consent you brought that up oh yes yeah, so this is this is you know certainly a disturbing thing that's coming up in terms of the psychedelic industry. Um, I'm sure it's been happening forever, but there are people out there, whether it's a therapist, a guide, a sham, a shaman, somebody using the word shaman without you know really being a shaman. Uh, you know these there there are instances or reports of people having been sexually assaulted during psychedelic sessions. And that's really disturbing. There's an incredible podcast out there. It's called Cover Story Power Trip. And it was put out by New York Magazine. And Dr. Lily K. Ross, she's one of the producers and hosts of the show. And she really goes in depth on this topic. So I highly recommend that people listen to it just to gain an idea of what actually is happening. And it's a weird thing to talk about because uh, you know, I certainly don't want to to think that people to think that oh, psychedelics are negative because people are being assaulted. That's not what I'm getting at. It's more about, hey, psychedelics put you in an altered state of mind. And we are incredibly vulnerable when we're on psychedelics. And part of that has to do with that mind flexibility that we have suddenly. And you're more susceptible to people persuading you to do something that you weren't prepared to do or didn't want, don't want to do. So, so touch in that regard can be problematic. And so I did talk to an expert. Her name is Natalie Villanova. Um, she's a licensed social worker. And she is studying consent in psychedelic sessions and trying to put some frameworks in place for um, you know, con- conversations around consent and just other safety issues with that. But she was really brilliant in talking to me about consent because I was asking her like, Are, is touch even ever okay in a psychedelic session? And um, she said in some cases, yeah, touch might be part of that because uh, if you're going through a difficult spot in your journey, um, which can happen, anxiety can crop up, uh, you might feel comfortable with someone or, and want someone to hold your hand, but that's a conversation 
that needs to happen before your psychedelic session. It needs to happen with your practitioner. And, you know, they, it, the onus is on them to bring that up and to to obey whatever or follow whatever consent rules that you put in place. But you should put consent rules in place before you do a session, specifically talking through things like, yeah, it would be okay if you held my hand or or if you patted my shoulder or whatever it might be, that's more of a comfort touch. Sex should never be on the table during a psychedelic session with a practitioner. I mean, yeah, you and your partner, your sexual partner might do psilocybin together and have sex and that's a different thing. But sex should never be something that someone's perpetrating on you in a psychedelic session uh, in you know, a practitioner, client relationship or patient relationship. But again, putting that, those, having those conversations beforehand, before the psychedelic session, and even if you've said yes to handholding in your consent conversation, during a psychedelic session, that therapist or guide still needs to ask you before they reach and hold your hand. And at that point in time, you can say no in your session. If you're like, hey, touch is not going to be good for me. No, that's now off the table. The only thing that can't happen is that in your session, if you, uh, if you already did not consent outside of your session to handholding, the therapist shouldn't even ask you to hold your hand because you can't consent to that when you're on psychedelics. It's just, yeah. it's off the table, you know, so it, it just can't go in reverse. Uh, but I thought it was really a great uh, conversation to have with this um, expert on consent because uh, she does, she is trying to raise awareness about it as am I, but again, I'm not vilifying psychedelics. I'm saying that the people who are perpetrating sexual assault are obviously the problematic people, but they're using psychedelics as a tool to do it. So I just want to make people aware of that. And that's not something that's just for women. That's for men to focus on too, because sexual assault happens to men and it's underreported. Well, it was just reported this week in Nashville, a soccer coach had molested yeah. boys, you know, so it happens in every field, you know, it's happened with yoga instructors, you know, so I don't have you, this isn't vilifying psychedelics at all it's, but it's raising awareness on the consent because I hadn't even thought about that honestly yeah you know I set out to write more like a, a small little section on that but I ended up doing a whole chapter on sex and consent uh and I'm glad I did and it was really because I had come across that podcast that uh expressed how um how this is happening and what's happening. And I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the yoga thing because it has happened with yoga instructors uh, or um, in teacher trainings where the instructor is preying on, on their clients. And, and again, I think it has to do with that vulnerability that you can be in and um, the more, you know, you're more susceptible to being persuaded, but not only that we tend, we, we may have this propensity to sort of idolize someone who's in that field. So a yoga instructor that you really admire, you idolize that person, it's much easier for them to prey on you then. And same thing with, you you know, going into a psychedelic session, if you have your guru or guide with you, you know, you, you are leaning on them so much to help you, help you navigate this space. There is some admiration that goes into that and that can make us more susceptible as well. So just wanting to raise awareness. And some inherent trust. I'm trusting this person yeah. to help guide me on whatever journey, yoga, psychedelics, whatever. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. What else? What have I not asked you about that is <laughs> so important for the listeners to hear? Yeah. I'd love to talk about uh, parenting if that's yes. okay. I love it. Okay. Yeah. 
So, so I'm personally not a parent. And I also like, I always like to preface that before I dive into discussions about parenting. <laughs> um, but I, you know, and that was another chapter that sort of surprised me in all the nuanced information that we need. So I wrote this entire chapter on not only con the context of psilocybin in parenting, but also what about breastfeeding, chest feeding, or um, being pregnant. And so there's not a lot of information out there about psilocybin and in pregnancy or breastfeeding. And the reason for that is simply because that we don't do studies on pregnant people and with, with, with good reason. And we don't do studies on uh, children who are getting breastfed, you know, again, with good reason. So I asked an anthropologist to sort of weigh in on that and a few other people um, who had who were well versed in the topic. And um, what we do know is there's no this the, the anthropologist, her name is Hillary Agro. She said that there's no uh, indication of harm if you look at, at uh, indigenous people who've been using psilocybin during pregnancy for generations. Um, there's no uh, there's no indication of harm. Again, we don't want to be reductive about that and say, yeah, just do all the drugs while you're pregnant. That's not a great idea. And, you know, only I would, I would recommend only using psilocybin if it's something that you absolutely need to do. But some people with mental health conditions do need to do that. And so, for example, um, this woman that I talked to, she talked about during her pregnancy, she, she got, she had gotten pregnant, and, but at the time she was a self-described alcoholic. And so she felt like turning to psilocybin would help her change her relationship with alcohol. And it did. So she journeyed during her uh, pregnancy and, you know, it ended up being fine and it stopped her from drinking during her pregnancy. And in that case, I can see the, the you know, definite benefit for the, the fetus because, you know, hey, we all know that alcohol is the, the worser of the, of the two, the, the, you know, in, if we're talking about drugs, alcohol is an extremely toxic drug. So, I, you know, that was something that came up. And, uh, and then there's also this, the concept of, of breastfeeding. So I ended up talking to a lactation consultant. She's very open-minded and non-judgmental and always willing to meet the person, meet, meet the new, new parent where they are. And I think that's brilliant. And we talked a little bit about just the strategies around using psilocybin while breastfeeding. Certainly, um, again, you know, we don't have studies talking about the safety in breast milk. But if you chose to use psilocybin, you can create strategies around pumping and dumping if that's what you choose to do. And um, so I have information in this chapter about the, the half-life of psilocybin and you know when it would essentially be reduced by half in your system and when it would be completely out of your system. I, I outlined that, did some math for you, even though math's not my favorite thing <laughs> in that chapter. But, um, but yeah, so that's included, but um, it also matters if you're doing a deeper journey or if you're microdosing. So you can still, you could still theoretically microdose because that's going to be reduced by half and out of your system much quicker than uh, a deeper journey um, in terms of the half-life and everything like that. And then the strategies surrounding breastfeeding also, you'd have to take into account how old your child is because if it's a newborn you're obviously breastfeeding much more frequently and so your strategy might be different than say if you are you know breastfeeding and in uh, a one-year-old or something like that you know for however long people choose to breastfeed so because the, they eat a different uh obviously a, an infant is going to be eating oh. or feeding much more so so that's all in there but in terms of parenting then um 
there's this whole movement out there, uh, Moms on Mushrooms, and I love it. It's, I joined that group. Yes. Did you? Okay. Yes. So yeah. Tracy T, she, she's the brainchild behind that organization. She's fabulous. And she's talking to parents who are interested in psilocybin and just kind of really trying to reduce the stigma out there so that we can all have open conversations about this. There's also another organization called, I think it's called Plant Parenthood. So it's, it's parents doing yeah. plant medicines, whether that's cannabis or uh, psilocybin or another, um, you know, plant-based drug as we call it but they uh you know so I talked to them and uh the the things that are coming up in in regards to parenting are that a lot of parents are finding that using psilocybin then helps them to get into that more wonder and awe and imaginative state that our children are in you know um so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sitting there, you know, tripping your balls off while you're, you know, responsible for caring for your child or anything like that. That's probably not the best thing to do unless you have someone else that's there with you that can take care of your child. But going off and doing a solo journey, uh, a deeper trip could then theoretically make you feel more excited about getting down on the floor with those Legos, you know, and getting into that imaginative and, and you know, state of wonderment that we are in as children. So parents are using psilocybin to engage more with their kids. And then also uh, there's this huge potential for, again, healing our adverse childhood experiences and then not perpetuating the cycles of trauma down through generations. So there's this crazy statistic that I like to throw out. Again, we talked that talked about how one in six adults have four or more ACEs in their life. And then if we look at what does that mean down the road, uh, children of parents that have had four or more aces are threefold more likely to have four or more aces themselves. And this makes sense. We've learned about cycles of trauma in, through research and how it actually trauma can actually change not only your stress response, but your DNA. We sort of pass that down. So if we can rework our traumas or focus on them and try to heal then that helps us stop perpetuating these cycles of trauma. You know, I, I think I truly believe that that shows some promise with parenting. Yeah. Breaking those generational patterns. So important. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you brought up alcoholism. Anything you have to add about addiction in general and psilocybin use for addiction? Yeah. yeah. So researchers have been looking into uh, studying, or they've been studying psilocybin for alcohol use disorder, op opioid, opioid use disorder, and then also even smoking cessation. So, uh, you know, we tend to, we, these are all uh, issues of addiction and psilocybin is showing promise to help with all of these things. So in terms of alcohol use disorder, I do um, write about a study uh, that showed a reduction in heavy drinking days after psilocybin use. So you can read all the details in my giant research chapter that I did on all the different conditions. But I was really fascinated also by, um, the idea of helping with smoking cessation. I mean, I, I'm not a smoker myself, but I know that smoking is something that's very hard to quit. And it's actually harder for women. There's statistics about this where women have more trouble uh, quitting smoking. And the reason for that is uh, we have different nicotine receptors than men, which is fascinating. Again, bodies are different, not just because of the menstrual cycle, but they're different. 
And so all the normal smoke, smoking cessation products out there, if you think about like patches or the, the nicotine gum, they all revolve around these nicotine, using your nicotine receptors to help you wean off of smoking. Well, you know, if we have di different nicotine receptors, quitting is different from us and none of the products are really tailored to women's nicotine receptors. And so I see a lot of promise with smoking cessation. And there is a study out there about, I think, oh, I, I think there's a study, I can't remember, but um, I, I talk about smoking cessation in that, uh, that big chapter on research. So my, my chapter 11 is really digging into all of the conditions that either um, solely affect people assigned female at birth, uh, or affect us disproportionately, or affect us differently. And so it was this chapter that I, you know, I took all those conditions and I looked at what we know so far regarding psilocybin in terms of the psilocybin being studied for this. And if not, is there some type of overlap? Menopause, for example, symptoms of menopause, again, going back to the idea of we're not actually, we don't have clinical trials in the works on psilocybin and menopause, but we do on psilocybin and depression and depression is a symptom of menopause. So I did all of that in this giant chapter 11 and I felt like it was never going to end. <laughs> I finally got to the end of it, but yeah. Yeah, but, uh, it just opens more questions, you know? It yeah. does. And, you know, I think going back to the smoking, what we're seeing now for the younger generation is vaping, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's just as addictive. Yeah, so. yeah, so that's an area for research. Is there any, are there any other areas of research that you're like, this has to happen now or that's just on your heart, you know? Yeah, I mean, I really hope that they, that the researchers at Johns Hopkins continue to investigate the menstrual cycle situation because I would love to see does it actually legitimately help for something like premenstrual dysphoric disorder, menstrual migraine, uh, endometriosis, um, all of these things? I really think I see psilocybin as the place where people actually might start studying women, you know, and it, it has to do with the fact that we have really um, immensely wonderful female scientists out there doing this work because we know the men typically don't want to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I love that. Is there anything else you want to share before we close things out? Hmm. No, I think we covered so much ground. I'm so excited about it. Uh, you know, just really hoping that the book gives people um, an entree into psych. It's actually a deep dive. It shouldn't just be an entree into psilocybin. I do include my own journey. So I talk about my own experience uh, using psilocybin and what that was like in a, I try not to make it so crazy. Like if I'm talking about a dream state, you know, because I think when you read, when you read about trips or you see trips on TV, like people in fictional portrayals, it, it always is like this crazy thing and it doesn't have to be like that, you know? And so mine was, uh, very beneficial to me. I included all that information and I feel like that helps people, feel more at ease with something with a topic that they may not know a lot about or aren't as comfortable with yet. And then I include stories from three other women. One is somebody who healed from an eating disorder by using psilocybin. Another is someone who's using psilocybin to combat anxiety, but also to really strengthen her relationship with her husband. And then the other person is somebody who has ADHD. She's not necessarily using psilocybin for help with ADHD, but she has used psilocybin to heal from trauma related to ADHD. And the reason that somebody might have trauma from ADHD is because, you know, they're living in a world that expects them to be neurotypical or to have, you know, perfect or normal executive function. And really none of us do, but people with ADHD certainly have, um, 
you know, concerns related to things like executive function. But when you live in a world that expects you to be perfect with all of these things, there that can create a lot of trauma for the person. And so that that story dives into how psilocybin helped her with that. So again, all stories from women. I only interviewed female scientists, you know, stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah, just wanted to share that. How can people get a copy of your book? So it's available anywhere books are sold uh, in Nashville. Lots of copies are at the uh, Nash, uh, the the bookshop Nashville in East Nashville. That's kind of my bookshop home. Um, I will have an event coming up at the at Novelette, which is another local independent bookstore. I'll be in conversation with another uh, with another author. So I'm looking forward to that. That's coming up in August. If you go to the Novelette website, you'll see that. Um, but again, it's available anywhere books are sold. And then if you're looking for me on social media, please follow me. I'll follow you back. Um, it's at Jen Chesek. So J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. That's my handle across all those social media channels. So we'll put all that in the show notes so people can click okay. on it too. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for your time. This was so educational, informative, and just impactful. Honestly, I'm excited for this direction. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. All right, guys, y'all have a good week. I will talk to y'all next week.